Our scripture reading this morning is Genesis chapter 8, verse 20, through chapter 9, verse 17. This reading can be found on page 6 in the Pew Bible. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Good morning, church. What a, what a blessing to worship with you. Let's pray together. Father, we would see Jesus. We pray that you'd visit with us this morning through the preaching of your word, that we would behold him and have faith and would be enraptured with him alone. Give us grace. We confess that we're needy sinners and we ask for your help this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let me ask you a question this morning. How desperate are you to support the preservation of sea turtles? <laughs> you didn't expect that question, did you? You didn't arrive here probably with sea turtles on your mind. How passionate are you to protect and preserve sea turtles? It's a sincere question. Our family loves to go to aquariums. We have an annual pass at Echo right here in Burlington. 
We visited the New England Aquarium in Boston. I like the sea turtle there whose name is Myrtle. Yes, Myrtle the turtle. They're not sure of her age, but she could be as old as 93 years. Now, I remember seeing Myrtle there when I visited the aquarium way back in high school. There are seven species of marine turtles, and all seven are endangered. So the aquarium in Boston has a research hospital, the Anderson Cabot Center for Ocean Life. We saw the same thing at the Outer Banks when we visited the North Carolina Aquarium there on Roanoke Island. They have the Star Center, Sea Turtle Assistance and Rehabilitation, Star. Places like these rescue sick and injured sea turtles. They rehabilitate them and return them to their natural habitats. And sometimes they keep healthy turtles in order to breed eggs and grow the population. And when these healthy captive turtles lay eggs, they take the eggs and they, they nurture them very carefully. They immediately fence off the eggs for protection. And then they use incubators to control the environment. Incubators produce the right conditions for successful breeding. They can adjust the temperature, and they can adjust the humidity. By the way, did you know that if sea turtle eggs are incubated at a higher temperature, they'll hatch predominantly females? It's true. Lower temperatures, you get predominantly male tur turtles. So even among sea turtles, the ladies just need more warmth. <laughs> so husbands, just let your wives crank up the heat. It's the way it is. The aim of these incubators is to create an environment where the eggs will be protected and preserved. Now, why am I talking so much about sea turtles and their eggs? Well, because I think they serve as an illustration for our text in Genesis this morning. If you highly value sea turtles, then you'll be desperate to preserve them. You'll support the Anderson Cabot Center. You might volunteer your time there. When something you admire is in danger, you respond to the need. You act in order to protect it. In our text this morning, God is valuing and admiring and esteeming something of great worth. So he acts graciously and decisively to protect it and to preserve it. And do you want to know what that is? You should want to know what it is because as it turns out, the thing he's preserving is something that you desperately need. If you have an ache in your soul, if you're hungry or, or lonely or guilty, if you're afraid of the future, scared of death or intimidated by eternity, if you feel weak or frail, tempted by sin or, or overwhelmed by life, then, then you need what God has protected and preserved. There's something far more valuable than sea turtles in our text, something that God loves and something that he has nurtured for the prosperity of your soul. So the aim of this sermon is to hold forth that treasure and to, to stir up in you an appetite for it so that you might lay hold of it eagerly. So have your Bible open to, to Genesis chapters 8 and 9. Emily already read the first part of our text, so we can jump right into chapter 8 and verse 20. That's where we start. We're picking up where the flood left off last week. We saw last Sunday that the waters finally receded gave way to dry ground. So God commissioned Noah to go and said that the animals would be fruitful and multiply. As Mitch said last week, here we begin to see the onset of a new creation. We'll hear be fruitful and multiply again in just a few verses. But before we get there, Noah builds an altar 
and he, he offers burnt offerings to the Lord. You see this in verse 20. The first thing Noah does after getting off the ark is he, he makes sacrifices. Abel offered sacrifices as early as chapter 4, and Noah does it here as well. He takes some of every clean animal and clean bird that was on the ark, and he offers them as burnt offerings, which means they're completely consumed by fire. The entire animal was burnt before the Lord. And they were offerings of atonement. They propitiated God's wrath. They stayed his anger. They satisfied him and appeased him. So Noah offers burnt offerings, and the Lord smells the aroma And the aroma is pleasing, it says. The New American Standard says it's soothing. God accepts the sacrifices and they they pacify him. In fact, there's a play on words here in the original, a pun. The word that is translated pleasing sounds a lot like Noah's name, which you know means rest. So it could be translated, the Lord smelled the restful aroma. It's an odor that causes God to rest from his wrath. In Genesis 2-3, God rested from his work. Here in 8-21, God rests from his wrath. Thus he says in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. You see that in verse 21? Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. The Lord smells the restful odor from Noah's burnt offerings and he, he makes this promise. Never again, he says. This is the incipient form of the Noahic covenant. This promise anticipates the covenant that he'll establish with Noah in chapter 9. Now what does he mean when he says he'll never again curse the ground? Well, I think it's pretty simple. He's saying that he won't destroy the earth again like he did in the flood. He won't further curse the earth in that way. God's not lifting the curse of Genesis 3.17. There's still painful toil. There are still thorns and thistles. I think your life is evident of that. No, the flood was a curse above and beyond the curse of 3.17. Similar to the curse that God placed on Cain in chapter 4, verse 11, when he said, Now, Cain, you are cursed from the ground. God's saying here that he will not add curse upon curse with respect to the ground. And why will he not again curse and strike down the whole world in this way? What does it say in verse 21? Why won't he do it? Because the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. There's the reason. Because of man's wicked sin. Does this strike you as strange? In chapter 6, verse 5, we read that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was grieved. Do you remember? And on account of this pervasive wickedness, God determined to blot out man, to destroy the world, and and hence the worldwide flood. Now he's saying he won't ever do it again on the same basis because of man's evil heart. That seems strange. So what's going on here? Well, as the outline says, God is promising to protect the seed. You see, God's wrath towards sinful man is like a raging torrent. His justice and his anger toward unrighteousness and his fury against man's rebellion, his wrath is surging toward all mankind. His holiness and his his glory and his beauty demand that wicked man be blotted out from the face of the earth. But this 
this torrent, this raging, frothing anger is held back by the dam of God's gracious and kind restraint. It's a wonder that God didn't destroy Adam and Eve the moment that they rebelled and ate the forbidden fruit. It's a wonder that you're here this morning and God is causing you to live and move and have your being. Right now, Jesus is upholding the universe, Hebrews 1.3 says, by the word of his power. And that's grace. It's grace. None of us in this room deserve his kindness and his sustenance. So it was right when the Lord saw that the wickedness in man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually for him to grieve and to determine to blot them out entirely. That was right. He opened the dam. He released the floodgates and gave vent to his anger. And he destroyed all of creation except one righteous man and his family. A man whom God raised up to preserve the seed of the woman promised back in Genesis 3.15. And now here we are in chapter 8, verse 21. Everything has been blotted out and is being recreated. And still, the intention of man's heart is evil. From his youth. A lot has changed in two chapters, but that hasn't changed. This radical recreation, which is only a type, has done nothing to change the human heart. So God promises to hold back the torrent of his wrath by never again destroying all flesh. In grace, according to his good pleasure alone, God says unilaterally in his own heart that he will never again repeat the flood. Because the intention of man's heart remains evil from his youth. What's going to happen to the world from this point forward? Wickedness will once again grow and become great. And God's fury will once again press and enrage and foment against sinners. But God, in the Noahic covenant, is securing the floodgates. He's promising gracious restraint. Think about it. In just two chapters, Genesis 11, evil sinners will erect the Tower of Babel. The whole earth in disobedience and rebellion against God will aim to make a name for itself. It's pride and wickedness. Pride and wickedness of the whole earth will become great and God's wrath will be at fever pitch. But God doesn't wipe them out, does he? No, he graciously confuses the languages and disperses them over the face of the earth. Which means in due time, he can give his promise to Abraham and to Abraham's seed and birth the Jewish nation there. So do you see what God's doing here? He's preventing an ongoing cycle of escalating wickedness and worldwide destruction. He's protecting the promised seed of Genesis 3.15. He's fencing in the promise. He's establishing an incubator for the seed of the woman. That's what he's doing. In this way, the Noahic covenant is a precursor to the Abrahamic covenant, to which these early chapters in Genesis are all driving. They're all moving to Abraham. So in verse 22, God asserts that life will continue with regularity and predictability until the very end. As long as the earth exists, there will be order. He will never again decreate the world and return it to disorder. Life will continue and history will not know any non-linearities like the worldwide flood again. I like how one commentator said it. However irregular the human heart may be, 
There will be a regularity in God's world and its cycles. As we move into chapter 9, God establishes the covenant that has already been anticipated. First in verses 1 through 7, he blesses a new creation. You can see in verse 1 that God blesses Noah and his sons, and he tells them to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth. You recognize this command from Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. There God blessed Adam and Eve and told them to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth. God's now reissuing that blessing and command to Noah and his sons. This is a new creation, and Noah is a second Adam. You see also in verse 2 that Noah and his sons are given dominion over all the animals. This too echoes Genesis 1.28, doesn't it? And in verse 3, they're told that every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. This echoes Genesis 1.29, where God said that Adam and Eve could have every plant yielding seed and every tree with seed as their food. Now, here, Noah is giving the ability to cook steaks and to make burgers. But you can see that it's a recapitulation of the original creation mandate with some safeguards. The new creation mandate is modified on account of man's wickedness. God didn't have to deal with man's wickedness when he established the original creation. Sin and death hadn't entered humanity yet. But here in chapter 9, there are safeguards of grace to curb the violence of evil men and to ensure life. This too is God protecting the promise of the seed. So Noah and his sons can eat meat, but they shall not eat flesh with its life. That is, its blood. Blood represents life. That's why blood must be shed for the remission of sin. That's why blood was required for atonement. Thus, the command is given to not eat the blood. We see this hold true explicitly in the sacrifices that are described in the law. In God's law, the priests are instructed to drain the blood from animals before they can be eaten. The blood can be used for atonement. It's placed in bowls, sprinkled on the sanctuary, sprinkled on the altar, but it's never to be eaten. Likewise, safeguards are put in place to protect the sanctity of human life. Verse 5, if a beast kills a man, it shall be killed. And this is seen in God's law also. In Exodus 21, 28, if an ox scores a person to death, it must be stoned. Also in verse 5, if one person kills another, that person must be put to death. God reckons life for life. You can only see it in the New American Standard, but the word brother appears at the end of verse 5. The New American Standard Bible says, From every man his brother I will require the life of a person. So this harkens back to Genesis 4, where Cain killed Abel. All humanity is of one kindred. We all belong to one human family. And thus verse 6, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made him in his own image. For many, this verse introduces the idea of capital punishment, the death penalty. That's how I read it. Whoever sheds the blood of man to kill him, by man, through the agency of man, shall his blood be shed. In the Old Testament, that was the elders of Israel or the avenger of blood. In the New Testament, Romans 13 tells us that it's carried out through rulers, through government. And did you catch in verse 6 another allusion to Genesis 1? When you hear God made man in his own image, you should recall Genesis 1. 
Nothing about sin or the flood has extinguished the image of God in humanity. Post-flood, in this new creation under Noah, the image of God remains. It's distorted and twisted and, and greatly marred, but it remains. In verse 7, you can see a bookend to verse 1. Noah and his sons are again told to be fruitful and to multiply. Again, they're to fill the earth, increase greatly on it, and multiply in it. And thus God has blessed a new creation under a second Adam, Noah. In verses 8 through 11, God establishes his covenant with Noah. You see it right away when God says to Noah and his sons in verse 9, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. Here God formalizes to Noah the promise he spoke to himself back in chapter 8, verse 21. Here he rehearses the content of the covenant by stating it in verse 11, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. That's the essence of 8.21 articulated to Noah. This covenant is the covenant that God spoke of before the flood in chapter 6, verse 18. Now he's establishing it with Noah and his offspring. Note that in verse 9. With his offspring, with his seed. This immediately concerns Noah's sons, who we'll learn more about at the end of the chapter. But primarily, this covenant's given to the offspring of Genesis 3.15. You've got to keep that in mind. Remember, it was promised there that the offspring, or the seed of the woman, would crush the head of the serpent... And now this covenant, the Noahic covenant, is being given to Noah and his offspring, the promised one who would come. In the very same manner, God will establish a covenant with Abraham, who, again, is the centerpiece of Genesis. And that covenant will be given to Abraham and to his offspring, to his seed. The seed is is central to the Abrahamic (coughs) covenant, just as it is here in the Noahic covenant. This covenant here with Noah is a prelude to the covenant with Abraham. And the promise is clear. Never again will the flood of God's wrath strike down all that lives. Never again will God decreate the earth because he's protecting the seed's arrival. He's creating an incubator for it. And God gives Noah a sign of the covenant. The sign is a bow that he sets in the clouds. You see this in verses 12 through 17. In verse 13, God says, I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and earth. Now this bow is the same kind of bow that Esau uses in Genesis 27.3 to hunt game. It's a, a hunter's bow or a war bow, the kind that slings arrows, the kind a warrior would carry to, to slay his enemies. So God is taking the the bow of his wrath, the bow that he would use to shoot angry arrows at his wicked enemies, and he's hanging it up. And he's pointing it away from us. And it's there for everybody to see. So every time you see a rainbow, you should think of God's grace. His grace. And consider how amazing it is that he's willing to restrain his anger toward a sinner like you. When God brings clouds over the earth and and there's rain, perhaps a storm, that rain will never again be a display of God's wrath. It will never again portend the worldwide destruction of the wicked through a flood. 
this rainbow is a sure sign that God will not destroy the earth again until the promised seed has come and has accomplished all that he intends to accomplish. Then, and only then, will God cause the earth's cycles to cease and bring an end to all things. Only at that final appointed time will his wrath be unleashed upon the world. Until then, the bow is a sign of his gracious, patient, wrath-restraining kindness. And it's a reminder for God himself. Did you see that in verses 15 and 16? He will remember the covenant. In verse 16, he says, I will see it and remember. He will remember his covenant just as he remembered Noah in chapter 8, verse 1. God is promising the seed. He's guaranteeing the seed that, that he will be secure because of divine faithfulness. The rainbow isn't a reminder because God's forgetful. It's a reminder that confirms God's character and it signals his faithfulness. So the seed will be protected. The seed will be preserved. It was preserved through Noah in chapter 6 and 7 and 8 as he passed through the waters safely. And it's preserved here at the end of chapter 9 despite the rising up of another seed of the serpent. So let's read verses 18 through 28 together in Genesis 9. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment laid it on both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. The covenant was established with Noah and his offspring. Now, these verses give us important details about their behavior and their lives. <coughs> Noah's sons were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham, verse 18 notes, as does verse 22, was the father of Canaan. It's important for Moses to note that here because by the end of the chapter, Canaan will be cursed for Ham's actions. Verse 19 tells us that from Shem, Ham, and Japheth would come the population of the entire earth. This is the outworking of the command for them to be fruitful and to multiply. And in verse 20, Noah begins to work the soil. We've already identified Noah as a second Adam. I think here's more evidence he tends the garden of this new creation, as it were, and plants a vineyard. And one thing leads to another. Vines grow, grapes ferment, Noah makes wine, and next thing we know, he's drunk and naked. Now, a lot of ink has been spilt on whether Noah is guilty or innocent in this matter. Is he innocent? Wine is given, according to Psalm 104.15, to gladden the heart of man. It's prescribed as a sedative in Proverbs 31.6, 
Give wine to those in bitter distress, it says. Maybe some have said this was the first time fermentation occurred. Perhaps Noah had no idea what he was getting into. One moment he discovered something new, next thing he found out he was drunk and naked. Now, I don't know that Noah was guiltless. I certainly don't know if this was the first act of fermentation. But I do take note that the text is not interested in condemning Noah. It doesn't make a moral judgment about his, about his actions. It just states the facts. The behavior of his sons is what's important. That's what's highlighted. Their conduct with regard to Noah is what's central in this story. But regardless of what you do with Noah's drunkenness, there's no escaping the fact that he's naked. Just like Adam knew that he was naked, here the second Adam has become naked. And that shame, Noah's shame, is the context for Ham's reproach, which you see in verse 22. What's going on in verse 22? Well, a lot has been said about that verse as well. Some say that Ham... It's earthy. Some say that Ham castrated his father. That's why verse 29 doesn't say he had other sons and daughters. That's why the whole earth was populated from just Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Some say Ham committed a sexual act with his father. Some say that when verse 22 says he saw the nakedness of his father, that it's a euphemism for having slept with Noah's wife. And then it's suggested that perhaps Canaan is the offspring of that union. But I think all these interpretations are looking past the plain meaning of the text. Ham saw the nakedness and shame of his father, and then he did nothing about it. He left him uncovered. And then he spoke of it to his brothers. He gossiped Noah's shame to his brothers. And this stands in sharp contrast to the righteous behavior of Sham and Japheth in verse 23. They take great pains to act discreetly and uprightly, don't they? They back into the tent with a garment positioned just right so that they can cover Noah's nakedness without seeing him. Thus, they, they remedy the situation and they act in honor. They counter Ham's reproach and they cover Noah's shame, which confirms, in my mind, the plain interpretation of Ham's actions, that he saw his father's nakedness and did nothing about it. Shem and Japheth act godly in contrast to Ham's ungodliness. So if Ham's sin was something different, like a sexual sin, their actions wouldn't really remedy anything. See, Ham endorsed the shame of Noah's nakedness by leaving it uncovered and then promoting it to his brothers. Shem and Japheth, on the other hand, cover Noah's nakedness. They act like God. Remember? God covered Adam's nakedness in Genesis 3.21. Here, Shem and Japheth show God-like behavior by covering Noah, which Ham didn't do. And now the whole encounter makes a little more sense, doesn't it? Do you see how Ham acted with serpent-like behavior? He's the seed of the serpent. His line is cursed. Noah wakes from his stupor. Somehow he finds out what happened. We don't know how. And he speaks forth a curse on Canaan. Ham's youngest son. Ham's indiscretion as a son has resulted in the cursing of his son. On the other hand, Shem receives a blessing. Noah says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Shem is the seed of the woman, and Yahweh is extolled as his God. 
The same God who is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob is the God of Shem. And Shem's line will soon give way to Abraham himself. So despite Noah's shame and despite Ham's reproach, the seed has been preserved. Do you see that? And we're racing every, ever closer to Abraham and the birth of the nation of Israel. Japheth, by the way, also receives a blessing. Verse 27 says, May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. According to Genesis 10.5, Japheth fathered the coastland peoples, who according to Isaiah 66 became Gentiles who were far away and had not heard of God's fame or seen his glory, but would be grafted into Israel and brought from afar to experience his glory. So this blessing over Japheth is a prophecy of Gentile inclusion that would be fully realized in the church. Well, verses 28 and 29 conclude our passage in the whole unit that began in chapter 6, verse 9. Noah lives to the ripe old age of 950, and he dies. And so we see that death has not lost its sting, but God has promised to protect the seed, and he's purposed to preserve the seed. So there are rainbows in the sky and a man that Abraham will one day call great-grandpa Shem. God has protected and preserved the offspring, the seed that was promised back in Genesis 3.15. And you know, dear church, that this seed is ultimately the Lord Jesus Christ. You know that. So in our text this morning, God has protected and preserved the coming of Jesus Christ. He has committed and purposed to make good on the promise that he made to his son. Do you see it? God the Father values and admires and prizes his dear son. He won't let that seed go extinct. He esteems his son and ascribes to him great worth. So he protects and preserves the promise that he made to him. He loves him and treasures him and delights to make him the center of attention. This text in Genesis is all about Jesus. When God promised to protect the seed, he was promising to protect his beloved son. When Noah offered burnt offerings on his freshly made altar, God the Father was only pleased with the odor because it reminded him of his son. He wasn't hungry. God wasn't enamored with clean animals. But when he smelled the sacrifice, which points to Jesus Christ, he said, that reminds me of my son. And on that basis, he promised to restrain his wrath. The smell of turkey and stuffing might take you back to grandma's kitchen, but the smell of a burnt offering takes God the Father right to the cross, where his son laid down his life as an atoning sacrifice for sinners. At the height of God's redemptive work, he put forward Christ Jesus as a propitiation by his blood. God did this to show his own righteousness because he had acted in divine forbearance and had passed over former sins. He had restrained his wrath and shown grace to sinners who were wicked and evil. So to remain just and to justify his people, he crushed his son. He poured out his anger on his son. And Jesus willingly absorbed the wrath that all his people deserved. He stood in their place and he took their punishment and he was completely consumed as a burnt offering. And on this basis then, 
God promised to hold back his wrath. And he created an environment where the seed would be protected and preserved. He blessed Noah as a second Adam in a new creation. He covenanted with him to never destroy it again. And he hung up his bow as a sign. This set of conditions was just right for the coming of Jesus Christ. Why? Because it paved the way for the promise to go to Abraham and to the nation of Israel. The nations will now be dispersed, not destroyed. The covenant will be given to Abraham. The nation of Israel will be birthed. Then Israel will be fruitful and will multiply and will prosper in God's hand, which will one day allow them to enter the promised land under the leadership of Joshua. They'll drive out those cursed Canaanites, those wicked sons of Ham, and the nation will flourish. It'll survive exile and captivity, and then it'll be restored so that the seed of the woman can come to a little Jewish town called Bethlehem, where a virgin will bear a son, a baby boy wrapped in swaddling cloths and laid in a manger, and his name will be called Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And this baby boy, the seed of the woman, promised back in the Garden of Eden, will be divinely the, the divinely nurtured Messiah, the God-man, the centerpiece of God's redemption, the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us, the true second Adam, the last Adam, who will inaugurate a new heaven and a new earth, a new creation unstained by sin and victorious over death. Doesn't Noah and his, his new creation beg for something better? Sure it does. Noah was a righteous man. He was blameless. He walked with God. Don't let our text change your opinion about that. He was blessed with a new creation. But he was only a type. And his new creation was only a type. Noah was found naked and ashamed. His new creation had safeguards for death and for sin. But Jesus, the true seed of the woman, lived a truly righteous life. He was blameless in every respect and walked with God free from blemish. And the only time he was naked and ashamed was when he was bearing the sins of his people on the cross. Thus, his new creation will have no sin and no death because he triumphed over them in the cross. After he died and was buried, he rose victorious from the grave. He died to sin once for all and now lives his life to God. 1 Corinthians 15.45 Thus it is written, the first man Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Jesus, because of his resurrection, has inaugurated the new creation. And he gives life to all who come to him by faith. So our text this morning centers on Jesus Christ. God is purposing and promising and positioning history all because of Jesus Christ, the promised seed. God's caring for and nursing and creating the right conditions for the seed. He's cultivating a controlled environment where the promise can come to pass and flourish. He's preserving and protecting it. Do you see how central Jesus Christ is? Do you see how it's all about Him? God has protected and preserved Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman promised back in Genesis 3.15. He's been faithful. The promise has stood. 
and the seed has come. God has valued the protection and preservation of the seed because he knows how desperately you need him. God is crystal clear about your need for Jesus Christ this morning. He can see that you're desperate for his son. So I want to ask you, do you feel your need for Jesus Christ? Do you feel the need for the promised seed? Are you desperate for Jesus Christ? Do you agree with the Father that Jesus is of supreme value? That your life should center on Him and Him alone? That only He deserves your full attention and energy and ambition? That He's your only hope? Your only answer? Your only support? Jesus is your rescue from God's wrath. He's your only Savior, the only Deliverer, the only wrath-satisfying substitute. He alone suffered and died for sinners. He alone conquered sin and death. He's your only path to eternal life. Jesus is comfort when you're afraid. He's the bread of life when you're hungry. He's living water when your soul is thirsty. He's your strength when you're weak. Jesus has supreme worth and he's the solution for the desperate needs of your soul. Can you see Jesus for who he truly is? He's God's sovereign, gracious, loving, generous provision for your salvation. His coming was designed to rescue sinners just like you from the wrath that you deserve. He's God's answer his solution to the threat of his holy and his righteous anger. So, apart from faith in Jesus Christ, you have no possibility of escape. Apart from Jesus, you're left alone in your sins and you're in great peril. If you have not believed in God's Son, then the wrath of God remains on you, the Bible says. Which means for some of you, that a raging torrent of wrath stands ready to overtake you. It's presently churning and roiling, waiting behind a shield of God's grace and prepared to engulf you and overwhelm you. God's restraining himself. He's patient toward you. He's forbearing. He's kind. But do you presume on the riches of his kindness? Romans 2.4 And forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. The right response would be to flee to Christ immediately, to turn away from your sins and to lay hold of Jesus Christ by faith. So if you're outside of Christ this morning, you ought to be desperate to have Christ as your personal Savior. Who else is going to rescue you from the wrath to come? Who else is there? Jesus is the seed. He's the one that God promised would come. God cultivated His coming and shaped all of human history to facilitate His arrival so that He could lay down His life as a wrath-atoning sacrifice. Are you going to look at this Savior who stretched out His arms and died for sinners just like you and see nothing attractive? Nothing valuable for your soul? Nothing worth devoting your life to? Nothing relevant for your plight? Open your eyes. And behold Jesus, a powerful Savior who stands ready to receive you and deliver you from the wrath to come. 
He welcomes all sinners who trust Him by faith. He invites you to come to Him. I like the hymn, Sing it o'er and o'er again. Christ receiveth sinful men. Make the message clear and plain. Christ receiveth sinful men. I'm trying to make it as plain as I can. You need Jesus. He's your only hope. And He holds out rescue and safety and eternal life. And He'll receive you if you come to Him by faith. And CMC, dear church, I want to ask all of you, are you obsessed with Jesus Christ? I think if you believe the words in our passage this morning, you'll be desperate for Jesus. You'll lay hold of Him as your greatest treasure. If you truly feel your need, your need for seed, then you'll be obsessed with Jesus Christ. Many of you are unsettled. I know this. Many of your souls are disturbed. For some, there's major turmoil. Circumstances have thrown you off kilter. You're convinced your faith is wavering and you're questioning your salvation. Sin seems to have the upper hand in your life and it's producing a growing dullness in your soul. Coming to church and being with God's people is not a joy and it's not a priority. For others, perhaps it's more subtle. You're growing tired of laying down your life for Jesus. Other things in your life appear attractive and they they beckon you to look away from Christ. Lesser hopes and lesser joys are, are vying for your attention, like comfort and ease or being respected by the world. You don't want to be dismissed. You don't want to be scoffed at. Maybe it's your family or your home or your agenda. Perhaps you had your heart set on life looking a certain way and it seems like God has other plans and now the affections of your heart are being exposed. And I'm just wanting to ask you this morning, do you treasure Christ? Do you value Him? Is your love for Him supreme? Are you hoping in Him alone? Is your trust only in Him? Are you obsessed with Jesus Christ? If you're unsettled, if if you're agitated in your soul, if you're afraid or if you're weak, if you're tempted by hopelessness, if you seem hungry and thirsting, thirsty for something more, if you're weighed down by guilt and shame, then you're feeling the need. You're feeling the need that you have for the seed of the woman. Those are signals and indicators that you need Jesus Christ. What if those affections could just drive you to Jesus? You know, I'm absolutely convinced for every single person in this room that Jesus alone is the solution to all your problems. He alone is the balm and the physician for your soul. He alone is your satisfaction. He is your only hope and your true joy and the path to eternal life. And to stray from Him, to look away from Him, is to starve your soul. It's to neglect your soul. And that's dangerous. To drift away from Jesus is to drift away towards apostasy. So I'm beckoning you to see your need for Jesus and to make Him your obsession That's what faith looks like. It looks like a a fascination with Jesus, a preoccupation with Jesus that overshadows everything else in your life and causes you to persevere in laying hold of Him and trusting Him as an anchor for your soul. 
I know that some of you in this room who once professed faith in Christ have come to the conclusion that you're not a believer. I know, I know of quite a few. Others of you are questioning the state of your soul and wondering if you're a Christian. Maybe you have good reason to doubt, or maybe you have a tender conscience and are given over to excessive introspection. Others of you are secure in your assurance, but you know it's unhelpful to presume on grace. You know, I see brothers and sisters drifting and falling away from the faith all around me, committing adultery, getting divorced, hardening their hearts towards Christ, forsaking the assembly, just not going to church, throwing themselves into worldly obsessions. I want to persevere in faith. I want to continue. I want to abide forever in Christ, and I know you do too. Jesus said in John 15, 5, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Do you hear that, brothers and sisters? Apart from Christ, you can do nothing. So if you've concluded that you're not a believer, if you're questioning your faith, if you're struggling with assurance, if you're concerned about falling away, if you want to persevere to the end, if you want your soul to prosper and your life to be honoring to the Lord, the solution is simple. There's one answer for each of us. Behold Jesus in all His glory. Do you see Him? Can you hear Him? He came as the promised seed. He bore God's wrath as a substitute. He crushed the serpent's head. His sacrifice on the cross is a sweet, rest-inducing aroma before God the Father. Even now, the Lord Jesus lives to make intercession for all those who draw near to God through Him. Can you allow all the circumstances of your life, the difficulties and the challenges, to blur into the background? Can you leverage your feelings of inadequacy so that they compel you to, to look away from yourself? And can you bring into focus the beauty and the wonder and the glory of trusting in Jesus alone? That's where true hope lies. That's where true rest is found. And that's where you will find everlasting joy and satisfaction. The Father's passion isn't sea turtles. It's His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the One whom He protected and preserved so that you could be rescued and given life. So let's be obsessed with Him. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you so much for the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray that you'd strengthen us as a church and that you'd enable us by your grace to lay hold of Jesus Christ, to cling to him and to never let go. And I pray that we would be marked by ongoing, persevering faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for your grace to us. Thank you for the chance to gather this morning. We commit ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen.